Britney Spears has fired her attorney and replaced him with a former federal prosecutor. I think it's fair to say her dad is starting to feel the heat and he will have to explain to a former federal prosecutor why his daughter Brittany, at the age of 30, was not able to make her own medical decisions. Yeah, I am thinking something is about to hit the fan. Also in the news, the Supreme Court decided to not decide the case where a Washington florist refused to arrange flowers for a gay wedding. Apparently, taking on abortion and gun control next term filled this court's controversial cases quotient. They might as well just tell attorneys now, hey, only civil procedure cases from here on out, we can't handle the pressure. Well, Mackenzie Smith and I will unpack these issues and share some travel stories, all in this week's Debriefing of the Law. Welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster. And I'm Mackenzie Smith. And we have a lot of fun cases to talk about today. Maybe we're going to go to talk about Britney Spears. The Supreme Court just made a recent decision in a Flowers case about whether or not Flowers is art. Uh, hey, we're going to unpack all that. But Mackenzie, it's, it's been a fun week. How are things going up there in Philadelphia? How is your world? Have you run the Rocky Steps recently? <laughs> it's it's too hot to run any kind of steps here. I don't know about out there. What? But it's been it's been miserable here. How hot? It's you know in the low nineties uh, with humidity well past fifty percent. So it's it's fairly <sighs> oppressive. It's pretty bad. Okay, well, uh, have you heard about the record heat wave out there in the West Coast, like in Oregon area? I have. It's actually terrifying. I heard, you know, upwards of 100 people have died. It's awful. So I, oh, I, I didn't know that. Well, I just went to Oregon and I had heard that and I'm going to the beach. And in my mind, I am thinking, okay, this is going to be hot. It's going to be a beach weather. I, I'm thinking, you know, swimsuits, go out to have a fun time at the beach. Have you ever been to the Oregon beaches? I have never been to the Pacific Northwest, and I'm dying to go. Okay, all right. If you go, leave your bathing suit behind. Now, this is not a nudist call, and I'm not suggesting that. <laughs> I am suggesting it is cold there. I mean, you can't. I can't even explain to you how cold it is. I heard about all these these heat waves out there, and I'm thinking this is this is going to be really hot. It's bitter cold. I was wearing two jackets, and my teeth were still chattering. It's that cold, and it's that way all of the time. So I, yeah, I went to the actual ocean and the the breeze coming off of the, the Pacific Ocean was just cold. There absolutely was no one there swimming. In fact, I have a picture of it and I, I took this video of the beach and it was like the middle of the day in July. Not a soul was on this beach. I mean, we're talking not no one whatsoever. It, it, it is cold. So, hey, if you ever do plan a vacation out there uh, and to Oregon, don't uh, pack your swimsuits. So, have you ever... Do you have any interesting travel stories, like like travel horror stories? Because I know we're just getting back to traveling, and I just find it interesting to discuss people's interesting travel stories. Any that comes to the top of your mind? Oh my gosh, I've yeah, for sure. I've had horrible travel stories. Um, I went back and forth between. Italy and the East Coast and New Orleans for a, a couple years fairly regularly. And, you know, just with the flight cancellations, getting stuck places. I think the worst 
night of my life actually was on, was on a flight from I think we were going from Philadelphia to Paris. Uh, my son, what who is now eleven, was about one and a half. Okay, and. Uh, I, for what he was a lap baby, so I had to hold him uh, right. for the whole red eye. And for whatever reason, they had given us a window seat. And I said to the woman, you know, I- I'm going to be getting up very often on this flight. I've got a okay. one year old. Would you mind switching so I can have the aisle? She refused to switch with me. So I oh. like, you know, had to climb over her sleeping all night. My son had contracted hand, foot and mouth disease, which we didn't know until we were on the flight. <laughs> And throughout the course of this, you know, seven or seven hour flight or whatever, he was developing sores all on the inside of his mouth and his throat. He spiked a fever. And then the man sitting in front of me had a heart attack halfway through the flight. I'm not even kidding. And they had to... He ended up regaining consciousness, but they did one of those things like, is there a doctor on the flight? And there happened to be... Three Haitian EMTs who did not speak English, but I spoke enough French to translate the instructions for the oxygen, which were only in English, into French, and they could understand me well enough, and they knew what they were doing anyway. They saved this man's life. Anyway, they ended up having to put the oxygen tank on my seat... And then I sat with my baby in the jump seat to land the plane. I mean, it was like the craziest flight, the craziest thing I've ever lived through. It was just a horrific seven hours. So, yes, I do have crazy travel stories. Okay, Mackenzie, next time we play the who has the worst travel story game, I am going first. I am not going to follow that. The guy in front of you is dying of a heart attack, and you have to be the interpreter for some Haitian EMT specialist. I can't top that story. I shouldn't even try. No, I'm I'm not even going to try. You did mention your youngest son, or or your son was was one year old when you you made this trip. Last time I traveled with my son, he was one year old, and um, the lady two rows behind offered him vodka. If that gives you any kind of an idea of how well that tra- that that trip went, and that was the last time he was on the plane when he was one year old and got an offer of of a, actually I think it was Jack Daniels from the lady two rows back. But hey, it sounds like she was having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yesterday's trip wasn't near like that. It was a, it was a little bit different. Yesterday's trip was just my brother and I had to pull this O.J. Simpson uh, run through the airport. And I know you're a lot younger than I am, but does that mean anything to you? The O.J. Simpson run. Well, I mean, did you have a gun to your head in the backseat of the Bronco? Did not that run. A, a different run altogether, yes. Now, this is um, the what, good OJ when he was the spokesperson for Hertz and running through the airport. And so our flight out of Oregon, we took this golf trip. I had a blast with my brothers there in, in Oregon. Uh, and so it was a lot of fun playing golf. But nonetheless, we um, the flight was delayed because apparently someone did some repair work to the plane, and you have a log sheet where you got to sign off on the work, and no one had that sheet. They're looking for that sheet so someone could sign off on it. We waited about 40 minutes for someone to find the sheet of paper, so the plane was fixed. They just couldn't sign the piece of paper yet. And so we get to Seattle for our, our, our changeover, and we had to fly. We were running, carrying our bags, and it was, hey, we made it with, with minutes to spare, so it was all good. But no one was dying you know, of a heart attack that I had to give CPR to. So 
maybe I'll just lie next time. I'll, I'll come up with a better story. I don't know. No, and I remember sitting in the in the back galley, um, you know, and I was back there for several hours because this happened like halfway through the flight, and I was chatting with the flight attendants and rocking my baby. And I said, you know, does this happen often? Because you guys seem so calm and composed. Like it was really incredible. And, you know, this was 10 years ago. So maybe it was a different time. I don't know. And people were behaved better on flights, but they said, I remember them saying, you know, this doesn't happen often, but you wouldn't believe how often people have severe, um, allergic reactions on planes. Like, and I never thought about it before, but people are allowed to fly with dogs and other kinds of animals. People bring food onto planes and there could be someone on the flight with, you know, an anaphylactic, Reaction, And, you know, all three of the flight attendants that I was speaking to said they've had to administer, you know, epinephrine to um, fly. Yeah, it's just, and that to me was very eye opening because, you know, you travel, I, I travel before COVID, at least I traveled fairly often. And, you know, you don't think twice about, you know, what the flight attendant's day to day life is. But then you hear something like that and you're like, well, my gosh, I mean, these people are really living quite a different existence than I would have pictured for sure. Right, right. Oh, if I could take a year off and just do it any other profession, well, probably the first profession would be a short order cook at Embassy Suites because I would love to cook omelets there in the morning. But then besides that, I would love to be a flight attendant, you know, just travel the entire world. Hopefully, I wouldn't want to have the flight from Kansas City to Omaha. Omaha, that'd be kind of boring. Uh, but, you know, somewhere cool, and you can have a layover, you can stay off. I think that'd be kind of, for a year. I'm not, I'm not saying permanently because I probably would get old after a while. I remember one flight I was on from from Washington DC back home we just left the uh the airport and the pilot comes on and says sorry we got to turn around someone left the door open i thought what is that um, how is that even possible but, but apparently that door there they forgot to latch it now i assume it wasn't flying open and shut but someone just noticed that it was unlatched and open and so or could fly open and so they had to turn around and and lock it and then we took off again uh, but Hey, the, the fun travel stories. And now that we are back post COVID, have you, have you flown somewhere? I know you're flying somewhere this weekend, but have you flown somewhere yet uh, with the COVID re- restrictions? Yeah, I flew um, back in March. I okay. flew to Fort Lauderdale. Okay. That's right. And I assume the people around you are wearing their mask. What, what would you do if the person person's mask was was just dangling was was hanging a little bit low was like below the nostril level you know it's it that's a really interesting question because i feel like there was a period of a few months that just elapsed where right. i've felt pretty comfortable because i am fully vaccinated so i have felt like fairly safe and i don't you know i'm i haven't been in like huge crowds um and certainly on an airplane like they do i have read that just because of the air circulation it's it's pretty safe um right. to fly but now with the Delta variant starting to go around, I'm starting to feel a little bit um, more cautious again. And the, this issue has recently come up because my kids are too young to get vaccinated. Um, right. And there are some adults in their lives that have refused to get vaccinated. And we have some birthday parties and other events, family events coming up. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I don't know how comfortable I feel 
with my unvaccinated kids being around unvaccinated adults who go who knows where like it's starting to be a little concerning again and I don't know if that's just me being overprotective of my kids or but this whole experience has really lent itself to like uncertainty and anxiety and you hear I've heard that there are you know maybe a dozen kids in down in Mississippi that are in the ICU with this Delta variant like it can be dangerous so I don't know when it comes to your kids you just kind of like if I were flying with my kids I feel like I might say something if it's just me i probably would just let it go because you're vaccinated so you 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 feel like hey i'm i'm safe i'm protected but maybe maybe the others are not yeah it's kind of a different world and and you see the the uh the myriad of responses and so like one I, i walked into one airport and i was in a hurry and so i did not have my mask fully actually it wasn't even on it's hanging off my ear the person said nothing. There was no no uh, questions. I went and got my ticket, uh, and so I moved on. And then the next person like saw that it was a little bit low, and then they like, oh, so you have to you change it. And so there's these different responses. Um, like some people's like, you can't even go past this until you get the full uh, mask up. Others don't even care that it's not even on. So I don't I don't know what the the, the proper response is. Obviously, I just fixed it uh and put it back on the, the correct way but hey it's fun at travel uh, experiences as you as you go about hey let's transition now to britney spears uh, i i am fascinated by this legal issue and i have so many questions in regards to to britney spears and what is going on with her uh what's what's the latest with britney So I think the latest piece of news in the Britney Spears conservatorship drama is that the judge did rule, I think this week, that she's allowed to hire an attorney of her choice, which is fantastic. And just, you know, obviously it's not the end of the road, but it's a huge step in the right direction. But, you know, I've been really excited to talk about this, too. Um, I think we've teased it a couple of times, but it is just a torturous, twisted story that has gone on for well over a decade at this point. And it's really, um, you know, I think it's an example of how things in this modern day and age where we have, you know, um, live video and social media, like things just kind of get brought to light. And, you know, there's a lot of toxicity that goes around in the world because of these communications tools that we have. But at the same time, I think this is an example of how they can be used to, you know, kind of shed light on things that would otherwise be going on in darkness and lead to public pressure. And it's a really good thing. Now, I, I think we all can agree that this week, when she was allowed to hire her new attorney, could be a game changer. I mean, this really can reset the stage. So I, I want to back up a little bit before we talk about what happened this week and why this was so significant. I do believe that her, her bringing on her own attorney, who, by the way, is a former, I believe, Federal prosecutors were talking. She brought in an attorney who's going to be able to clean house here and figure things out and see what happened uh, throughout the whole entire ordeal. People can have there's going to be some answers. People can have to explain their actions here to this federal prosecutor. But before we get there, how do we get here? I mean, how is this not odd that a lady who seems to be normal? I mean. How do we get to this point where this person can't even make a decision concerning their own birth control? Can you walk us through a little bit of the history? 
Yeah. And it, it, it definitely is odd. And I'll just, you know, say up front, we don't know all the details um, because of the nature of a lot of the court proceedings. They've been sealed. So what our commentary, you know, we only know what has been made public. And, you know, there are there may be facts that would change the analysis one way or the other that we just don't know. But basically what we know is, you know, Britney Spears became a pop phenomenon in the late 90s um, by, you know, within the decade after she put out her first album, she had amassed quite a significant fortune in the tens of millions of dollars. Um, and she was, you know, famous. She was hounded by the paparazzi everywhere she went. It was kind of the height of, you know, the tabloid industry and it got to be a little bit too much for her. Um, she had some issues back in 2007, 2008, where she was placed on, I think, two involuntary psychiatric holds um, after some concerning behavior. And right around that same time, her father petitioned for a temporary conservatorship of both her estate, which would be her finances, and her person, which would be all of her personal health care, medical, and, you know, just personal decisions. So, Mackenzie, can you walk us through the personal conservatorship? Because there's a lot about this that I do not understand. How someone who is a healthy person, and I think Britney Spears was about... 25 years of age, somewhere 25, 26, when this all happened, how can someone else get the right over her body? I just, I, I am flabbergasted. Please make some sense of this for me. Right. So, you know, typically conservatorships of the person, I would say, you know, the average age of a conservatee of the person over whom the conservatorship is imposed is probably much older than 25, but there's nothing in the law that, you know, prevents someone getting a conservatorship over a young adult. And in fact, in California, in order to get a conservatorship over the person, the petitioner, who is in this case Brittany's dad, has to prove to the court by clear and convincing evidence that the proposed conservatee, again, in our case, Brittany, is unable to provide properly for her personal physical needs, including health, food, clothing, or shelter. I can't imagine that that standard was met here. I mean, I, I can't imagine there ever was a time when Brittany said, I can't put food in my mouth. I mean, I, I would assume that that level of incompetence, because I don't know who the circles you run around with, Mackenzie. I run around with a lot of idiots. I know a lot of idiots. I think I'm related to them. Just kidding, relatives. But I'm just saying, there's a lot of idiots out there, and they're, they don't all have personal conservatorships over their body. Isn't that standard like a near vegetable status? Yeah, I mean, it usually is. And, you know, obviously there's a similar standard for um, guardianships, which would be of, you know, children who, you know, are in the um, dependency system for, for some reason. But obviously small children are not able to provide for their own health, food, clothing, or shelter. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's a really, really high standard. Plus you need clear and convincing evidence. So you can't just, you know, run to court and say, oh, oh you know, my daughter can't do this for herself. There has to be actual evidence provided. And, you know, in thinking about this, the only thing that came to my mind, and again, this is 
not, I don't have personal knowledge of this. We don't have any record evidence, but there was someone in Brittany's life at the time. I think his name was Sam Lutfi, who was kind of like a hanger on. And I think other female pop stars actually had restraining orders against him. Um, I think one of them was Courtney Love. I can't remember the other ones, but he kind of like was a drifter around Hollywood, I think, and somehow like made his way into Britney's life. And there were some allegations at some point in time that he may have been actually drugging her. Um, and you know, wow. in, in order to, I assume, you know, get money out of her, her or get her to agree to, you know, hire him as her manager, which she apparently did for some period of time. But even in that circumstance, you know, I, I do think Britney's parents did ultimately petition for a restraining order and they were granted one. So that if that was the concern, then the restraining order should have been the remedy, if not criminal charges, but there would no longer be a need. I mean, clearly, if that person were removed, who was essentially battering her, um, then the need for any kind of outside, you know, assistance would be terminated. And that's, you know, as we talked about earlier, that's part of a conservatorship. Like, you, the court has to find that there's no less restrictive alternative. So if once this restraining order was in place, like the court wouldn't be able to consider that anymore in terms of the clear and convincing evidence. So I'm with you. Like, I really don't, especially someone of such financial means, I don't see how this standard could have ever been met, needless to say, on a, on a permanent basis. That's the problem I think I have with this, the permanent basis of this personal conservatorship. I mean, it's one thing to say for a temporary period of time, this person is unable to take care of themselves, so we're going to step in and help them out. But that surely has to be extremely limited in time. Uh, I just can't see how we can have a legal system where someone else can permanently have the right to choose how you, what you do to your body. I, I can't even imagine that being allowed under the law. And so here... Who messed up? Would it be the parents? Would it be the court system? Would it be uh, Britney's lawyer? Uh, and is there going to be liability at the end of the day? If it's found out that the the uh, her lawyer did not advise her properly as to this personal conservatorship or did not speak out on her behalf, uh, might there be recourse against these various individuals? I mean, yes, there's certainly a claim, you know, a conservator, both of the estate and the person, has a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of the conservatee. So if there's any evidence that, you know, Brittany's dad or the attorney who is a conservator, a conservator of her estate were not acting in her best interest, then there would be a claim there for breach of fiduciary duty, you would think that, you know, if if she had an attorney who did not advise her of what her rights were under the law, and for example, um, I guess in her statement the other week, she stated that she didn't even know that she could petition to end the conservatorship. I mean, that's not only malpractice. I would imagine that that's, you know, a severe ethical violation right. as well. So there's got to be some recourse there. In terms of the judge, you know, unfortunately, um, well, my understanding is that the original judge has left the bench. So I just don't know, you know, 
you can't, there are procedural mechanisms for when a judge, you know, makes the wrong decision or, you know, commits an abuse of discretion or doesn't follow the law. And those are usually appeals or, you know, in more extreme cases, um, writs of mandamus or other procedural mechanisms that the law has built in. And again, that would fall back on the attorneys. If the attorneys weren't advising Brittany that she had these avenues for recourse and she didn't know, then in my opinion, that would fall back on them, not necessarily the judge, unless the judge engaged in some kind of, you know, criminal activity. Right. But here, the, with the, the fact that a permanent uh, personal conservatorship was put in place, I have to think someone messed up. I just cannot think that someone in Britney Spears' mental state, we've all seen her mental state because she was a public figure during this time period. How that that person is unable to make decisions about their own body, in my mind, somewhere the law messed up. Or I will throw it out there. It is possible she was just incorrect as to what her lawyers told her. I mean, that, that is possible. Sometimes clients don't remember things that lawyers told them. And her personal lawyer, uh, what, just a couple weeks ago, resigned and said, well, if you want a new lawyer, I'm out of here. So he probably, that to me says, look, you might be a difficult client. I'm out of the story. I, I can't handle this headache. I'm gone. I don't care if a federal prosecutor is going to come and be your new lawyer. We've done everything on the up and up. So we really don't know what actually happened. This is just a big head-scratching opportunity. Now, McKinsey, one of the head-scratching opportunities that I had was when it came out that she wanted to have the birth control in her removed, but was told no because of this personal conservatorship, I was aghast. I was like, how is that even possible? Is that even the law? Well, I researched it. I was surprised to find out that is the law. If you have a personal conservator over your body, they have the ability to make those kind of decisions. And so because the personal conservatorship was in place, that actually was the law. Did that surprise you? Well, I mean, and again, this is such an atypical, atypical conservatorship that in this case, it shocks the conscience. But you can, you know, conjure situations in which such authority would be appropriate. For example, like if you have someone who is in... Um, either a vegetative state or has severe dementia to the point where they don't, right. they're not aware of their surroundings and they need medical decisions made by a rational decision maker. Obviously someone else would have to make those decisions, but that's the type of situation that the law contemplates here. I mean, right. I think that the issue with the birth control is nothing short of outrageous um, and speaks to how in American culture we have commodified celebrities, especially young female celebrities, to the point of, you know, not being able to recognize their humanity. And there was a systemic breakdown here because if nothing else, at least the law should treat everybody as equal human beings. And, you know, not being able to, you know, have agency in her own reproductive health is just, I mean, it, there, it, I'm like at a loss for words about it because it just doesn't, it, it should never happen um, right, ever, right, but especially under, in 21st century America. We can understand someone who is in a vegetative state. Now, I'm just going to throw out there the name Terry Schiavo. I assume you remember that ordeal from several years back. She was in a vegetative state, and so someone else was could make medical decisions for her. Now, it makes sense in that 
that that situation. But here, when a person is alive and well, we just think that they're being an idiot. Surely being an idiot is not grounds for losing the ability to control your own body. I, I just can't imagine. So I, I, again, questions abound as to how it came to be where a personal conservatorship, a permanent one, was put in place over Britney Spears. Surely someone is going to have to answer for that. Now, Mackenzie, you might have known this, but I, I then did a little bit more research, and there is a real sordid history in our nation's legal history over these issues. Buck v. Bell, which you probably are familiar with that case, that is a case, I think, from the 1920s, where the issue came up over forced sterilization. Are you familiar with that case? I am. I think it was in Oliver Wendell Holmes' opinion, right? Yes, a Supreme Court opinion. And the issue in that case was whether or not it was constitutional, legal, to have a system of laws that had forced a sterilization over a person. And the Supreme Court, and I am not going, these are not my words. All right, please, no one write to complain. Joel, I can't believe you would say that. I am just quoting for you what the what Oliver Wendell Holmes said in his opinion, he said the reason why forced sterilization is legal under our laws is because three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, McKinsey, I can't even imagine someone saying that today, let alone putting into a published opinion in the 21st century. But that actually, that is still the law in America. Uh, does that does that surprise you that Buck v. Bell is still the law? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it, you know, it hasn't been explicitly overruled, but if you, you know, it, it it's not really in practice. And I think that right. decision was rendered in the 1920s. And so, you know, if we look at it historically, we can see in the ensuing, you know, couple of decades, what happened across the world with eugenics and the Holocaust that would kind of, you know, render that decision, you know, an aberration of history. But, you know, there there have there's been, you know, academic talk and debate over time of, you know, what whether the government has an interest in preventing you know, people from having too many kids that they can't take care of, you know, and it's just not something that the government can effective like can regulate without infringing on human rights. It just that's part of who we are as people. And, you know, that's a core part of what it is to be alive as a human is to have agency over your reproductive health. And, you know, it's it's just mind boggling to me in Brittany's case that something so fundamental to her being has been taken away from her for so long. Okay, McKenzie, I'm going to go there. You probably are probably not thinking I would go there, but I'm going to go there because I just had this thought in my mind. I Generally, I'm old enough now and wise enough now to know when I had this thought, I should probably ignore it. But I'm <laughs> going gonna, gonna to not ignore it. I'm going to go there and say, you know what? Let's, let's unpack that in today's world where you have a lot of opposition to vaccinations. Now, let me just kind of build this issue up here. And the issue is to what level can the government say, look, we're talking about public health. We're talking about the health of everyone involved here. And so maybe we can make some decisions in the name of the health of, of the population to force you to do things that you don't want to do to your own body. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he basically was saying, look, as a population, we don't want to deal with imbeciles in his own words. So we should have forced sterilization. Now, I clearly think all of us would be aghast at that today. 
But is that legal principle still alive and well? That now the, the government can make decisions in the name of public health, forcing you to do things with your body that you do not want to do. So what do you think about that? Did I just open up a can of worms? I'm sure you did. But, you know, I, in my view, there's a pretty simple answer to that. And the answer is no. The government can't force you. What the government can do is impose consequences for your choices, right? So the okay. government can you know, say you cannot come into this public space if you are not vaccinated and refuse to wear a mask. You cannot, you know, send your kids to public school if they are not vaccinated. There are so many consequences that, you know, can be put in place or incentives to mold behavior into the, you know, one direction. But I don't think, you know, government agents can come to your house and stab you with a needle if you don't want to be stabbed with that needle. Like they just, the government can't forcibly through its police power do that. And the difference I see with the Brittany case is the government action in that case was the, the imposition of the conservatorship. The government bestowed upon Brittany's father the power to make those decisions, including to take away her, her reproductive rights. And he did. So if if what Brittany is saying is true. So the government action right. is a little bit different. You know, no one came into into Brittany's OBGYN office and said, stop, you know, stop the IUD removal. We're not letting you take that out. Right. It wasn't a forcible thing like that. It, it was, you know, a different, it was one step removed, I guess. But, you know, with the vaccine conversation, like, I don't think... The government can just say, like, everybody has to receive a vaccine. I mean, there are communities, you know, that for religious reasons or other beliefs, like, don't vaccinate their kids against childhood diseases. And, you know, they they bear the consequences of those decisions, both, you know, regulatory and health-wise. And, and that's that just is, how it is. That, is. that is a good point. The vaccine issue is fundamentally different than the Free Britney issue. The Free Britney deals with really what's in Britney Spears' best interest. And, and so there, usually we are allowed to make our own personal decisions, uh, but somehow the law was applied to say, well, no, she is not uh, not able to make her own personal decisions. Someone else is going to make those decisions for her. But still, at least theoretically, it's what is in her best interest as compared to what is in society's best interest. And so that is a, a fundamentally different issue. All right, well, that is Britney Spears. And again, I'm a very, uh, from a legal perspective and a podcaster's perspective, we are going to be following this now that a former federal prosecutor has been put, uh, is now Britney's personal attorney in this case. So if there was any impropriety that happened before, I am sure he's going to get to the bottom of it. So we will make sure to follow that here on this podcast. All right, let's transition now to another case before the U.S. Supreme Court or rather, I should say, it's another case not before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, recently, the Supreme Court was asked to take up this case of a, of a Miss Stutzman from Washington. She was a florist, and she would design floral arrangements, and she re was asked to do a floral arrangement for a same-sex wedding, and she refused to do that, citing religious objections. Well, the context of this case is fascinating because we are in the heels of two huge Supreme Court decisions. You had the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from a couple of years ago where the Supreme Court said that uh, the 
the particular Denver, Colorado Civil Rights Commission could not enforce its laws targeting this per- this cake decorator's religious beliefs. That was a violation of the free exercise clause to target his beliefs. So we have the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And then we have the Fulton v. City of Philadelphia case this last year where the Supreme Court held 9-0. It violated the free exercise clause to have the system in place where they the, the City of Philadelphia require... Or, or, or prohibited this Catholic organization from participating in the state's foster care program uh, because it had because of its religious beliefs. Uh, there, of course, there was a system of individualized exemptions in that case. So, on the heels of those two decisions, you have this Flores case. Now, McKenzie, I'd assume before this last week happened, if I had asked you. Do you think the courts can take this case up? Uh, because this, this florist was basically cited and found to be in violation of this state anti-discrimination law because she refused to provide floral arrangements for the same-sex wedding. If I had asked you two weeks ago how the court was going to rule on this case, what do you think your, opin- your, your opinion would have been? Well, Joel, I feel like, you know, my batting average is pretty low. I am in the minor (laughs) leagues of my predictions on what the Supreme Court does. I mean, it's hard to say what I would like. I like to think that I would have been right and would have said they're not going to take this case, especially if I read, you know, the briefing, um, you know, a couple weeks ago. I do think, you know, just from like a holistic standpoint, the court has already taken at least two, if not more, pretty controversial cases for next term on big cultural um, touchstone issues. So I maybe, you know, the court just doesn't have the stomach to, you know, take yet another one. But also, I do feel like the court was pretty clear in the Philadelphia case from this term. Like, we're not overruling Smith, you know, and in Masterpiece Cake Shop. The the both holdings were based on the fact that the state's policy or law was not really neutral and generally applicable. Right, right. So in the Colorado, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, they had the um, administrative agency, whatever the agency was that was kind of reviewing this discrimination claim, basically said to the cake shop owner, you know, you're just like Hitler and, you know, made some kind of statements. And that's government action that really demonized the cake shop owner. Similarly, in the Philadelphia case, the city of Philadelphia's city council resolution said something like, you know, this is discrimination thinly veiled as religion, which was just, you know, false on its face because the religious belief at issue has always been a religious belief of the Catholic Church. So there was some animus there, and it wasn't really applied to everyone because there was discretion uh, granted to give exceptions, which they didn't do for the Catholic social services. So my understanding is that in this floral shop case, the policy actually was neutral and generally applicable. And so maybe it was just, you know, the court kind of saying, we've made our decision. We're not overruling Smith. As long as it's neutral and generally applicable, we're not going to take up yet another case on this issue. Okay, so there's two ways to approach the Supreme Court's decision not to take this case. One approach is to say, is there anything substantive we can take from the court's decision not to review this case? In other words, are they 
in tacitly endorsing this approach where you have Washington that had a law that, as you said, was not hostile on his face. There's no indication that there's religious animus going on. This was just a neutral, generally applicable law. So was the Supreme Court saying substantively, this is okay? If you have a neutral, generally applicable law, it can be enforced against someone to cause them to violate their sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, when you're talking about a commercial transaction, uh, can you take something substantive from this decision? Also, I think it is important to note that there was no real free speech issue involved here, some other constitutional right. Maybe when you're talking about a cake decorator, there's some expression going on there, expressive activity. Here, you're talking about flowers that are in a pot. And yeah, I'm just not buying there's any kind of expressive activity going on there. But nonetheless, is there anything substantive we can take from this case such that other states can look to this, can look to Washington and model their rules and their actions off of them? Or is this maybe uh, you're reading too much into it? And as you said, maybe is this just a matter of the Supreme Court that already had too many controversial cases scheduled for next term. They're they're dealing with abortion. They're going to deal with gun rights. Why add another controversial case to that mix? Let's, you know, keep in mind that court packing is always on the horizon. We don't want to be too controversial. And so uh, maybe, maybe that's how you should interpret the Supreme Court's decision. Nonetheless, it'll be interesting to see how the, how the, the public reacts to this case. Any uh, final thoughts there on the, the, the Stutzman matter? Yeah, I mean, I think the the free speech twist from Masterpiece Cake Shop, I think you're right. Like, it's not, you know, my understanding in this case is the gentleman who was trying to order the flowers, like, they were... off the rack. In other words, it wasn't, you know, like some custom arrangement. It was the same flowers that this flower shop provided to other weddings. And, you know, he was just saying, like, I would like you to create these flower arrangements that then I pick up on X day and I'm going to, you know, you're not participating in the wedding, but I'm going to bring them to my wedding. And the answer was, no, I won't sell you these flowers. I won't sell you this product um, because of your status as part of a gay couple. And I think there is, you know, there is a difference there, or at least a distinction um, that does make this feel like, you know, how, how much of a violation of a sincerely held religious belief is providing a product that you provide to every other member of the public. And, you know, I hate, and I know the court hates too, to get into the business of parsing out what people's religious beliefs are and and how sincere they are. It's a really slippery slope and it's dangerous territory. But it did make me think when I read over the briefing in this case, it did make me think, well, does this, if, if it's a, you know, Christian floral shop owner, which I believe it it is, or was at the time at least, um, does that person refuse to provide flowers for a Jewish wedding, a Muslim wedding, you know, what, like, because those religions also have beliefs that are antithetical to Christian beliefs. So like, where does it, you know, can you really start parsing that? I mean, if you're going to own a business that's open to the public, don't you have to be open to the public? Well, here's the difficult thing about that. The Supreme Court and all courts are very reluctant to ever 
discuss the uh, veracity of your religious beliefs. They could be crazy beliefs. In fact, there's one case out there over the Church of the Fl- Flying Spaghetti Monster. Uh, <laughs> and so there's some crazy beliefs out there. And by the way, that was a really crazy case. We're writing about, about that in our book. Uh, it's going to come out here one of these days, but there was a prisoner in Nebraska who belonged to the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, and he believed the afterlife consisted of a beer volcano and a stripper factory, and he wanted his religious beliefs accommodated in prison. So yeah, he wanted a Bible study in prison where there was a beer volcano and a stripper factory. That would have been the most popular attended Bible study, I think, in the history of prison Bible studies. But nonetheless... <laughs> There are crazy religious beliefs out there. The courts are very hesitant to ever judge the veracity of one's religious beliefs. So they don't want to go down that road. So then how do they approach these kind of cases? Well, let me just tell you what I think is the current assessment of the law and get your opinion on this. The first way the courts are going to look at these type of situations. So you have these non-discrimination provisions and you have a a business owner who has religious beliefs against uh, same-sex marriage. Okay, the first issue is going to be, is what this business person is, is being asked to do, does, does that require any affirmative thing like speech? Are they forcing them to engage in other constitutionally protected activity? If so, I think the courts will apply strict scrutiny. For example, if uh, uh, hiring someone to, to be a vo- an actor or, or to, to write a speech or to do something expressive, I think that would require uh, a heightened scrutiny to, to that, that law as compared to a point-of-sale transaction. So let's say, uh, the example, in this particular case, where there's a flower arrangement on the shelf there of a store. Someone comes and says, I want to buy that that flower arrangement. Okay, that's a point-of-sale transaction. No further work needs to be done to that flower arrangement. They just, just hand it to the person. The courts would say, no, look, you can't use your religious beliefs to deny engaging in commerce with someone who, who you disagree with on a theological level, right? That, that's not how the law is going to be applied. Uh, and so in this particular case, was a f- flower arrangement? What Did that involve expressive activity? Probably not. I, I think the court probably wasn't willing to, to go there. All right, that's one way to look at these cases. Another way to look at these cases is under the free exercise clause. And if the law at play is actually neutral and generally applicable, you're going to apply rational basis and the law is going to survive. And as you pointed out in both the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and in the um, uh, the recent Fulton City, Philadelphia case, the law was not neutral or generally applicable. And so a heightened review was applied to strict scrutiny and the laws failed both tests. But if the law does not involve another constitutionally protected activity like freedom of expression, and if the law is neutral and generally applicable... I think the law is going to stand. Any thoughts on my legal analysis other than it's brilliant? I mean, it's very, um, it's very logical and it's very, you know, concise. And I like that. And I think that that's probably, you know, where the court is coming down in this particular case, because, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, where does it end? Like if you, if a gay couple can't walk into a flower shop and say, you know, I'd like this arrangement and that, you know, the flower shop is allowed to say, no, I'm not selling that to you because 
you know, I don't want to participate in it. You're going to use it in your gay wedding. Like, can they not go into Party City and buy balloons? Can they right. not order food? Like, where does it end? I mean, can How about getting a taxi, just... an Uber to to the um, the church? Exactly. Like, that. I think most people, virtually all people would say, like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, giving someone a ride in an Uber doesn't constitute, you know, being forced to participate in this ceremony that, you know, is contradicts your sincerely held religious beliefs. So, you know, I do think like there, there's always been a tension in the first amendment, right? Between establishment and free exercise. And we're seeing that now with this particular issue. But I, I think that, you know, part of the beauty of the American system is that we are a melting pot. We do have people in our country of all different religious beliefs, all different sexual orientations, all different lifestyles and philosophies and ways of living. And the one thing that does unite us all is profit. Like we should be able to engage in commercial activity with each other, you know, freely and with open markets. And that's kind of, you know, how our system is set up. And so I'm in favor of, you know, maximizing that until there, I'm sure, you know, there is a, a threshold and I think you articulated it probably correctly in the, in the court's view of where that line is going to be drawn for the foreseeable future. And so, hey, if you are a city commissioner, if you're on some kind of civil rights commission, I guess the legal advice to you would be just button it up, zip it up, and don't, don't equate the person's religion to Hitler or Nazism. That's not going to be a good look for your apparent neutrality. Uh, but you know what? This will be definitely be an area of law to watch because some people say you have a super conservative majority on the Supreme Court, which when I hear that, I just laugh. I'm like, no, no. Look. If you talk <laughs> to conservatives, no conservative is saying there's a super conservative majority. They probably think it's a 5-4 liberal majority, but nonetheless, who knows how the court's going to come out on these cases uh, next year. That's why you and I are here, so that we can unpack these cases, debrief the law on a regular basis. Hey, before we sign off, I know this is in July, and so it's a downtime for legal news, but anything else that captured your interest? What do you think, as a liberal, I think you're a self-professed liberal, is that is that not correct? <laughs> Yes, I'm loud and proud. All right, I thought you said you've been to Europe recently, so I just made the connection. <laughs> um, what do you think about Breyer? Breyer's catching a lot of flack for his, I say, quote unquote, arrogance. I read that article recently of not stepping down and retiring. He is the world, the U.S.'s number one liberal on the course, and people want him to step down, and they're calling him arrogant for not stepping down. Uh, do you do you have a thought on Breyer? Well, I mean, I understand where the critique comes from because we've, we, like, not even liberals, but even moderates, I feel like, have been traumatized in the past five years of what has happened, not of the people with perhaps one exception for reasons that are not relevant, but not because, you know, there are conservatives on the court because no one is arguing with their qualifications and with the fact that they are qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. No one, I mean, no one is reasonably arguing about that. But with what, you know, the Senate has done procedurally to deny, um, you know, Merrick Garland's confirmation and then to rush through Justice Barrett's confirmation, it's all been such 
whiplash and just right, so right. disappointing to court watchers and liberals specifically. Um, so I do, I do understand the critique. For me personally, it is very difficult. You know, I am a, <laughs> I am a just, I don't want to say a worshiper, but I am just a believer in the Supreme Court. I, I really am like a true believer in what they do. And that doesn't mean I agree with every opinion. Sometimes I think they are, you know, just totally letting their personal identities and politics getting the best of them. Like, they're obviously fallible. They're human beings. And, you know, I don't agree with everything the court does, obviously. But I do believe in the court, um, you know, as an institution. So it's it's really difficult for me to come out and, like, openly criticize a sitting justice in a public right. forum, especially. Like, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I have to kind of trust that Justice Breyer has his reasons for making the decisions that he's making, they are, you know, whether to step down or not is his decision and his alone under the law. And, you know, whether we personally agree or not with the strategy, if there is any strategy, like, we kind of have to just accept that, you know, he has his reasons for doing what he's doing. You know, I don't, I don't want to see any more shenanigans, and I would love for President Biden to be able to nominate and have the Senate confirm Justice Breyer's successor, but I, that's not within my control. So, you know, right, I love right. Justice Breyer. I get, you know, a lot of pleasure out of reading his opinions. So if he's going to stay on, like, I will look forward to reading them next term and, you know, just try to live with that. I, I do like Justice Breyer as well. I think he actually is one of the better liberal justices out there. Number one, he's not liberal on every single case. Uh, you know, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, he and, and Kagan were in the majority. Uh, he also was in the majority in the uh, Trinity Lutheran case, a case involving recycled tires in the uh, free exercise clause out of out of Missouri that went before the U.S. Supreme Court. So I think he's a he's a fairly fair-minded liberal. Uh, or you know, I like his his. his jurisprudence. Now, Breyer believes that the Constitution should be interpreted like it's an ever-evolving document. You interpret it according to current norms and standards. Scalia believed, believed the Constitution was, the meaning of it was rigid. It was set in stone. You, get, you ask yourself, what did the founding fathers intend or think when they passed that certain provision? I got to tell you, because I don't know what the right answer is. I, I kind of see both having merits in their own place, uh, in their own situation. Uh, do you have a thought on Breyer versus Scalia, originalism versus it's an ever-evolving document? What is the proper approach to interpreting constitutional provisions? You know, I'm not a relativist on most in most contexts, but I do think this is one of those you know, pervasive questions where maybe there's not a right answer and a wrong answer. Um, certainly, the founding fathers intended there to be a way to amend our nation's founding document. That's right. why we have amendments to the Constitution. Um, I, 
you know, I, I think it's a little too rigid to say, you know, we, we can only view it through this originalist, like I'm not, I, I'm not totally on that end of the spectrum because that's not functional at a certain point. Like it just doesn't, that it breaks down because there can, it's very difficult to amend the constitution. And, you know, we have to like have a functioning government or we should have a functioning government at some level. Um, you know, on the other hand, there there can be an overly generous interpretation that kind of, it's like, well, why do we even have words written down then, you know, if we're getting too far on the other end. So I do think there's, you know, a tension there. Maybe there's a tension there for good reason. And there has been back and forth over the last couple centuries and how the Constitution is interpreted, you know, and I do appreciate justices like Justice Breyer who have, you know, their philosophy on you know, issue by issue, and it's well thought out, and it's deeply, you know, held and studied, and they have their way, you know, that's why we have these incredibly intelligent, well-educated people making these decisions, because it's thought through. There's a meaning behind what they do and why they, you know, see the Constitution the way they see it. So luckily for me, that's way above my pay grade and I don't have to think about those issues. I can just read about what they do and critique it from my comfortable office chair and try to sound really smart about it. But, you know, I don't know if there is a right and a wrong. I think it's also unfair for people to put the weight of that on one individual person. Like you hear the critique a lot, well, they know what's going on and the filibuster and so they should rule this way. And, you know, I also think, you know, that's not fair either to one Supreme Court justice to say, okay, you have the weight of everything going on in the country politically on your back. I don't think the system was set up that way either. So it is a fascinating system because you're right. It's like a very, um, uh, TD, I don't know the right, what the right word I'm looking for here is, but you know, it, it, it's there's some play in the joints here with these various constitutional governmental uh, pillars and institutions, and at the at the end of the day, they're all answerable to the people. So let's say the Supreme Court oversteps their bounds one way or the other, and the people are so upset about that they want to change the the law or they change the people in power. At the end of the day, the people have the final say, and that is the, really the beauty of our system. And so, if you look throughout our history, there have been times that the Supreme Court has legislated from the bench. They, they just have. They have created their own law. I think there'd be uh, you'd be a fool to suggest otherwise. At other times, the Supreme Court has been rigid. No, we we just call balls and strikes. We don't actually create any law. We're just interpreting law. All right. It seems like it, it kind of changes and shifts throughout time. Here's a question that we can uh, close on this thought. <coughs> I've been grappling with this, this thought this week. And what is the purpose of law? Is it to provide for justice in any particular situation? Or is it just simply to allow society to advance to the next stage? And so whether the, the application of the law is right or wrong... It's good for society. It allows for an orderly society. Uh, any thoughts on that? <laughs> so funny you bring that up because it's it's really an issue that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And maybe that just belies how much of a nerd I actually am that I like drive around in my car thinking about like <laughs> what why do we have laws? But you know, I 
I think it's an important question to think about because, you know, for example, it comes up a lot when you hear about gun control and people say, well, if you take the guns away, it doesn't stop people from getting guns, right? And I think, and I don't know because I'm not a gun control activist, but I think, you know, a lot of activists see what they're advocating for more as like an expression of their values as opposed to actual regulation of human behavior. And even things like, you know, murder laws and rape laws. I mean, does anyone, is anyone like about to commit a murder and they're like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot. This is illegal. I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> like it doesn't right. actually stop people from, I mean, maybe in a few, a few contexts, but I think in most contexts, like it doesn't prescribe behavior, right. maybe right. things like traffic laws and other things that are just, you know, more low level kind of regulations do. But when we're talking about like the moral issues of our time, I'm kind of coming to a place where I feel like the law in a lot of these areas, and maybe even going back to this florist case, like the law in a lot of these areas is really a democratic expression of our values as a community. And part of what we're seeing with all the discord going on is that we as a national community don't have a homogenous set of values anymore to the extent that we ever did. You know, maybe it's just that we, you know, everything with communications is so fast and pervasive now that we we think it's worse than it's ever been. I don't really know. I've only been alive for 38 years. But, you know, we... It's, it's hard to have a democratic expression of your values on things like, you know, voting regulation and uh, gay marriage and gun control when, you know, some people really believe that guns should absolutely be illegal for everyone. And some people just as sincerely and just as strongly believe that, you know, uh, the right to own a firearm is one of the, you know, top most sacred rights as a human being that you can have. So it's really tough. I mean, I think it's, it's, that's a really interesting thought and one that I've been having too lately. Like, let's just say, for example, you have a, a an issue where the, the public, um, it, they're all enraged about something and it turns out that something is wrong uh, but should the public be appeased so that there's, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know where I'm going with that. So I'm going to pause that thought. I'm going to hold that for a future <laughs> podcast because I want to unpack that in future classes. Again, I, I, in future, future podcasts, I've been working on this thought of what actually is the purpose of law. Is it to allow for some kind of righteous decree of what our rights are? Or is it just simply a way to maintain order? Whether that's right or wrong, it's kind of like almost disciplining a child to set an example for the others. The discipline for that one child might be incorrect, but it sends a strong message to everyone else that everyone else then falls in line. And so you have an orderly family, an orderly society, even though in one particular instance, injustice might have have reigned out again just a thought i want to throw out there what is the purpose of law is it to maintain order or is it to allow for a perfect righteous decree of the legal system i don't know food for thought for future classes or future podcasts hey mckenzie have a great week uh enjoy yourself up there in philadelphia and we'll talk to you next week
Wonderful. I'll think about this issue some more and maybe hire some Nobel laureates to help me. <laughs> we can circle right. back to it another time. And for you podcasters still listening this late in the day, I will tell you this. Uh, we actually earn extra brownie points because this is the second time Mackenzie and I have recorded this podcast. I forgot to hit record the first time. So we did an entire podcast that only saved half of it. So this was our second run at it. And I just looked at my, my, uh, my, uh, uh, recording device, and yes, we did get this one. This one has been captured. Our brilliant thoughts have been saved for all posterity, and so uh, that is good to know. Hey, have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Joel. See you next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. <laughs> 